you have your, your Bible, uh, feel free to crack that thing open to Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, my assignment is going to be to talk about, to consider, uh, as it pertains to this idea of rainmakers, and as we are seeding the ground for revival, what does it look like for us to see our, our city through, God, through God's eyes and, and in, in light of that, have God's heart for God's people. And so I, I want to title this From Mourners to Missionaries, Living and Praying as Exiles. So if you would, just go ahead and stand uh, with me as we honor God's word, as we read it as a family in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 14. This is what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not cease, do do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. We ask that it would form us, allow us not just to read it, allow it to read us. Allow it to read us, shape us, transform us in your image, we ask. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. I love that addition of just the rhythms of our life. I love to stand for this word. May 28th, 1992. The principal cellist in the Sarajevo opera, dressed in his formal black tails, and sat down on a fire-scorched chair in a bomb crater to play Albionini's uh, Adagio in G minor. The site was outside a a bakery in Vidrin Smajlovich in his neighborhood uh, where 22 people were killed. Buying bread at a bakery. From that point forward, this man was known as the cellist of Sarajevo. He performed not just outside of this bakery, but for 22 days in honor of the 22 people that died. This man, he played in graveyards, funerals, rubble of buildings, as you can see behind me. 
as well as in the sniper-infested streets. His response was, I never stopped playing music through the siege. He said, my weapon was my cello. His, his music, it created an oasis amongst the horror. He was endeavoring to create a new world of hope and wonder in spite of the current brokenness that he found himself in. I love this story in its beauty and in its sadness because it gives us a visceral image. Almost uh, it brings us, it brings us into this portal of what the people of Israel might have been feeling when they were exiled into Babylon. This is a nation that was ravaged. He's inviting, and in, in this text, what we find is that God is inviting his people through tangible action and prayer to step into the brokenness of the world and begin to release a prophetic imagination of what life could possibly be like. The context of this text in Jeremiah is a man who was, has been tortured up to this point. He's been betrayed by his family. He's been imprisoned. He's been put in, in stocks, starved, humiliated. He's been put into a muddy cistern. And in the midst of this environment of a man navigating chaos in his own soul, he's been trying to reach out to the people of Israel in Jerusalem to get them to repent, to get them to come back to honor, to serve, to surrender, to now find their identity in the God of the creation. And yet they've rebelled. They've, re they've rebelled fully. And now what we find is that God's judgment is upon them. They've been, been brought out of one place and brought into another location. This idea of, of exile this was a means of eradicating uh, a people group holistically. It's taking away their identity. In, in fact, um, to, to now step into a, to step out of Jerusalem and into Babylon in that day and age, when you left your place of homeland, it meant that your God no longer had its power. And here they find themselves being pulled into a, a space where they had a new language, they had a new cultural system. They had new identities. Daniel, Meshach. Can you imagine this? I mean, what, what, what we find with the people of Israel, according to Psalms chapter 137, verse 1 and 2, is that, is that they found themselves at the rivers of Babylon, and there they sat and wept. They hung up their lyres. Their days of joy were done. They'd been brought a thousand miles away from everything that they had known and they are now dropped into a new world. How will they respond? And there was multiple perspectives on this, this unique moment in their history. There's the perspective of Babylon that, that Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, and the great king Nebuchadnezzar had defeated Yahweh and Israel. That, that now everything that Yahweh was, his day is done. That was a Babylonian perspective. There was a deconstructing Jewish perspective. 
that now, as because they expected for God to do certain things and God wasn't holding up his end of the bargain, guess what they were doing? They were deconstructing their faith. Sound familiar? And then there were prophets. There was a prophetic perspective. Again, all of these differing perspectives on how are you going to navigate the moment where you have everything you've known is lost and you have been dropped into a new world and you have to survive in that world. And where is your God in that world? And there was a prophetic perspective. These prophets, man, they're saying, hey, guys, just hang on. In two years, we're good. You've got all of these differing viewpoints of trying to see the same thing. And here comes Jeremiah. What he's doing is he is going after um, two approaches. There was a syncretism. A syncretism that, that for many they thought, man, let's, let's, let's do what we can to live for the present. To, to, now, to now mold our God and Yahweh into the current cultural ideals and ideas. Let's, let's add God into the systems and values of culture in order that we might fit in. One approach was syncretism. Another approach was separatism. Withdrawal from the community. Either fight it or flee from it. Just get out. This is where we find many believers, many people, they're looking at this current cultural moment. They don't know how to process it. And so many are now trying to add God to the current cultural system and say that everything's good because God's somewhere in the middle of it. He loves us all. Or we're disconnecting and trying to get the heck out of Dodge. And here comes Jeremiah and he has this this new way to live and to pray. It's a new way. And he's, his idea is, is that he wants his people, that he loves, to live fully present while longing for another kingdom. That's what it looks like to be in exile. It's to live fully present while at the same time longing for a new world. Jeremiah, he re-engineers this understanding of how to do life. And he does it in a way that that shocks people. He actually is now telling people that you, it's time for you to go from a refugee to a resident. From a victim to a visionary. It's time to go from mourners to missionaries. Can you imagine this? Like the trauma of this encounter. I mean, I, I I can't even begin to get my mind around the, the emotional the, the emotional impact that it would have had to go from one place that your whole life has been built around and now you've been pulled out and you've been, you've been dropped into this space. You are, you are now connected to a new location where you are a prisoner there. And this is what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. This is going to be the main focus of, of our talk for, for tonight. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when in its welfare, you're going to find your welfare. See, his, his invitation is really simple. Seek 
the welfare of the city. Pray for it. Seek the welfare of the city, but pray for it. But before you get into the mission, here's the deal for all of us, as well as for them. They had to settle their sending. See, throughout verse 4, 7, and 14, there's this refrain. I have sent you into exile. And they're asking, man, how, how can a loving God send me here? You see, they were resisting the sending. As a result, they were resisting the city. They couldn't put the two together. They didn't have a theology for a God that would actually make their life uncomfortable and bring them to a new place. They, they, they weren't agreeing with this sending. They wanted no parts of this. And as long as they had no parts of it, they had no parts of God, and they ultimately had no parts of the city. They had to, they, they had to come to a place, man, they had to settle their sending. I mean, I, I recently, I, I got a chance to, to, to talk to um, a woman who is an aerialist. What that means is that, and I didn't even know this, but there are people who their whole life is spent on trapeze. And all they do is swing. Like, that's it. They're professional swingers. Like, I mean, that sounded bad. They're, they're professional trapeze artists. That was awesome. There it is. Yeah, you're awake. That's all they do. And, and I, I thought it was really clear and simple, the process of trapeze artistry where you've got one person who swings you've got another person who catches and that's pretty much it but she was explaining to me that this process of being on a trapeze being an aerialist uh, when you're three feet up three stories up in the air it is it is so overwhelming and and your, your world is spinning and you don't know what's what and you're you're swinging back and forth and what I didn't realize is that there is actually, there is a person on the ground who is the director. And that person is seeing the chaos back and forth and back and forth. And I didn't know this, but what she said is she, she, she said that the job of an aerialist is to tune your ear to the director on the ground. See, this is what that director is doing. They're seeing the timing and the chaos. And at just the right time, the director says, go. And as soon as you hear the sound, one person lets go, one person catches. See, what God is doing through Jeremiah is he's getting them to tune their ear to God, to let go of everything that they thought that God was going to do, should do, might do. They had to settle the sending. You know what? God has actually sent me here. And, and you know what? This, this whole process, I think for many of us, there, there's tension even for some of us here that we don't like Northern Virginia. We don't like our neighborhood. We've questioned God's timing and, and, and when it comes to the job that we've taken. For some of us, we're here because our own ambition has gotten in our way and through our own faulty decisions, we find ourselves here. 
through our own mistakes or, or we wanted more money and so we took a job not caring about if God's in it at all. But we just, we, we find ourselves here. And guess what? No matter if you have been, if, if you are in a current position where your heart is perfectly aligned or you find yourself in rebellion, guess what? God sent you here. God sent you here. You got to settle the sending. You've got to. The only way that you can get to a place of embracing the place that you are and be able to pray for this place that God has put you is for you to settle it. You've got to settle it. That we've all been in places where, where, where we've made certain decisions and we are our own worst nightmare. Guess what? God sent you. I, I, there, there's, a, there's a great story of Edwin H. Lanzier, 1881. He was known for his stag paintings. These paintings were beautiful, ornate. It's from Scotland. Well, the tale goes as follows. He found himself at a, at a pub in the back, probably, oh, what was he eating? Something good, shepherd's pie, maybe with a pint. Oh. I digress. So he's, he's in this pub. And he's seeking, like he's in the back. No one sees him. And, and the story goes that there was a, a waitress who, was, who had her hands full and she was going about her business. And, and, and there was this whole collection of, of men who were telling tales of their fishing expedition. And one man rocks back and, and talks about the fish that he caught and extends his arms, hitting this poor lady who had a, a pot full of coffee. Well, what she didn't realize is that the wall that she was next to had freshly been painted. The wall was ruined. She realized she has to pay for it with the money that she doesn't have or she's going to get fired. Out of the back comes Edwin Lanzier. Steps into the light and says, let me look at the stain. He had his paints he began to go to work. Out of the stain, he creates the stag on this ruined wall. Out of the chaos, a masterpiece. When we settle the sending, when we realize that God's hand was guiding, God's hand was guarding, God's hand was moving, that even in spite of our own judgment, the judgment of this people, Israel, is replete. It is, you cannot ignore it. But in spite of the judgment that they deserve, you have a loving God who steps in and says, I have sent you there. I've sent you there. And, and this, is, this is a people where Jeremiah is begging as he is with you and I, inviting us in to be a part of the story of a God who now takes our chaos, takes our judgment, takes our sin, takes the life that we have lived where we are our own worst nightmare. And in this savior, you have one who takes out the painting. Says, hold on, let me get a shot at this. I've sent you. I've sent you. You have to settle the sending. Once we settle the sending, this is where it gets fun. It says, but seek the welfare of the city. Settling your sending, it creates now a heart 
that begin, they can begin to own where you are. This is the heartbeat of what Jeremiah is trying to get these people to think. He wants them to own where they are. To own it. This is my place. This is my home. I love what Dr. Brian Loritz says about this relationship between mission and ownership. He says, mission without ownership is a heartless colonialism. Yet ownership without mission is consumerism. This is what he means. I, I know, I was, I was a, a mouthful. Mission without ownership is a heartless colonialism. This is what mission movements have been doing for, for hundreds of years. Going into a people group, not being a part of the people, but trying to recruit them for their purposes. It's a disconnection. It's an unwillingness to own the place. But then if you go to a place and you love the city, but you don't have a mission for that place, guess what you're doing? You're consuming. You're cons if, if you are in D.C. and you love the city, but you don't know what your mission is, you're currently a consumer. And yet, simultaneously, it's, it's so easy to have a passion for the mission and not have a passion for God's people. And then what we do is we just try to recruit. What, what, what he's saying is he's saying, I want you, I want to invite you into a world of ownership. And, and, and this whole idea of, of seeking the welfare, let's, let's do a little bit of a definition of terms. The idea of seeking is an understanding to look intently or to investigate. The welfare, I'm sorry, when you think about welfare, your translation may have peace. So we're shalom. Does not mean absence of strife or struggle or war. It means a comprehensive wholeness. Comprehensive wholeness. That what Jeremiah is inviting these people find themselves in a world not their own is to have an intentionality to look intently at the place where they are in order to bring comprehensive wholeness. That when you settle the sending, you're free to see. Isn't it amazing that when, 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 when you actually come to grips with the fact that you're not going to fight the place where God has put you, when you're not going to fight it anymore, it's almost like you give yourself permission to see it through new, through new eyes. I mean, it's, have you ever been in a place where, where you've resisted, you've resisted, you've resisted, but something breaks and now you're free to dream and now you can put your roots down and now you can have a new courage, a new energy, a new longevity. When I think of Grace Loves, I think of, of the story of our church and, and a story of seeing this city through comprehensive wholeness. I remember when we saw that there was an increase of high school girls getting pregnant during the pandemic. We saw that. We needed to bring comprehensive wholeness. So we partnered with Young Lives, an organization that helps to come alongside of young girls who find themselves in desperation to hold out Jesus and give them practical hope. 
saw that there were over a thousand massage parlors in Fairfax County alone. A thousand. Twelve of which that are four miles away from our church. Saw that. Partnering with GCCK, we, we made decisions like what can we do to come alongside of some of these parlors to now reach out, connect with, and discover ways in which we can hold out Jesus and hold out practical support to enable these young girls to flourish. We saw that there was, in Fairfax County alone, 31% of the people who live here are born outside of the United States. 31%. It's higher than Manhattan, Orange County. So as a response to seeing our city, seeing it, like we've been sent here, we're not fighting the sending, seeing a city in the current condition that it's in, and our response was, man, we've got to create a program like ESL in order to now come alongside of hundreds of families who are trying to figure out how to speak English, help them in that endeavor, but at the same time hold out Jesus in the process. We discovered there was over 5,000 kids waiting to be fostered in the state of Virginia. 5,000. Church, I'm, I'm just trying to give you an update of our city. This is where we live. If we're going to be people who are not consuming and yet at the same time are fully engaged in God's mission in this city, we've got to look at this city through new lenses. The 5,000 kids waiting to be fostered. What was our response? Create an initiative like Grace Loves the Family in order to help families figure out how can they bring more people into their life. We couldn't ignore the Afghan refugees that were flooding into our city. What's our response? This week, we've adopted four more families. Just this week alone. <laughs> Dropout rates in high school at an all-time high during the pandemic. What's, what's our response? What's our response? Partnered with Hernan High School to create a mentorship program to come alongside of kids in order to, to help them discover their purpose and discover Jesus. So that whole communities were going without, with basic needs like food. Partnered with Mobile Hope to help over 300,000 people get what they needed. What does it look like for you to hear all of this and to go, God, what do you want to do to help me settle my sending? Put roots, to begin to look at the city through a new lens. But you may be going, well, Corey, I, I, can you bring it down just a little bit lower? What, what does it look like for me to do something even more basic? I work 90 hours a week. Is there anything else? God has called you and I to seek the welfare of our city through your table. Through, through your table. You have 21 opportunities. For some of us, it's more like 28. After this fast, it's going to be 35. We have 21 opportunities every single week for us to extend the kingdom of God and seek the welfare, the flourishing of, of an individual that God has put into our life. Like, what is, Corey, what is the purpose? Like, what is the strategic 
plan of extending the kingdom in Washington, D.C.? Is it, is it our worship? Is it great preaching? Is it, is it a great experience? No, no, no. It's you. You're, you, 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 you are the strategy. I don't know if you know this. You are the strategy with a heart full of the love of Jesus, thinking seriously and missionally about how you can take those 21 moments every single week and extend that kingdom in order that through that, the welfare of the city might be seen, felt, experienced, and tasted. Seek the welfare of your city. This is what he's saying. Let, let, me, let me throw this in as a side note as well. What I, I love about this whole, this whole text, even the whole idea of, of, of coming to a place of, of embracing the sending. See, when, when Jeremiah is explaining that I want you to, I want you to take, take gardens and create them. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Guess what that is? That is Eden language. This is Genesis 1 and 2 language. That, that is our king looking to his people and saying, even when you're in prison, you feel like you are, in the prison, I want to create, through a partnership with you, Eden. In this place called Babylon. A place that brings you to tears. A place that you want to get out of. No, no, I want to partner with you to bring Eden here. But along with that, what I love about this language that, that, that he's, he's using is, he says, I, I want you to have kids. I want, your, I want you to have sons and daughters, and then I want your sons and daughters to have sons and daughters. So it's almost like forming the next generation is one of the ways that we seek the welfare of, 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 of our city. I mean, if you think about it, like this is, these are, like, when it comes to the book of Daniel, you've got Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you've got Daniel. You, like you've got individuals, like a person like Daniel, he, he steps into this cultural moment. He's got, he's got this empire in front of him. And guess what his response was? Hey, Daniel, how's the, the whole experience going? We're going to bring you into our program. Yeah, it's going well, but you know what? I don't like the food. As you see, I, I think that we can potentially do, you know, like a 10-day vegan diet thing. I think we can like adjust some things. Maybe I just have some water. I don't know. Let's give it a shot. What do you think? I mean, you've got a young boy who has the people skills to now push back against an empire in order to hold tightly to, to that which he's been formed in through the leadership and the revival of Josiah. Josiah has created this environment, this culture of treasuring the Bible, treasuring the sacraments of, of, of the Passover, of repentance. I mean, you've got a man in Josiah who's leading an entire nation, especially the next generation, into an undivided devotion of Yahweh. And the result of that, you've got young men who step into Babylon and they are undaunted. Undaunted. I mean, like, what, where does the courage come from with men who step in and say, you know what, I'm not going to bow to your worship or to your little musical festival. I'm not going to do it. Even if you throw me into fire, I'm not, I don't care. My God's going to meet me in the middle of that. Where does that come from? Men who have been formed by a culture, a society that is, that is focused and devoted to Yahweh. What would it look like for us to now take the, 
privilege, the responsibility of forming the next generation as one of the ways by which we expand the kingdom of God and allow for the welfare, the peace of God to hit our nation through our commitment to investing in the next generation. Like this year alone, there's over a million kids who have left the faith. A million. Why? Because they find the person of Jesus not, not compelling. What Barna has, has said to us is that 70% of people will leave their faith at the point in which they graduate from high school. What would it look like for us to re-engineer a process of discipling our kids in a way that they can now expand their passion for Jesus, grow in in an environment like this, but hold it out everywhere that they go without feeling like they are, man, they don't have anything to prove. Passion for their king because of how we formed them. This is one of the ways we seek the welfare of our city. And then what Jeremiah says is he's, he says this. He says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray. How do prayers for a place like Babylon, what do they, what do they even look like? Well, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gives us a window into what it looks like for us as a people to be fully committed to not just a life of expanding the welfare of the king in our environment, but praying for the city that we're in. What does it look like? This is what he says. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. As soon as this man starts to pray, and what was his prayer? It was a prayer of confession. Before we start praying for our city, what Daniel teaches us is to bring who we are to the king. It's to have a posture of confession. Is that with, with Daniel, his, he wasn't looking at the problem being anything else. The problem wasn't Babylon. The problem was him. And he's praying this 70 years after he's been in Babylon. This is a man who was, who was one of, I mean, he, he was blameless. And yet, what is his response, his posture, the way that he prays for his city? He begins with himself. Heart of confession. I mean, this, this idea of confession is, is, is rooted in the covenantal love of God. Is that he takes who he is, but he, he, he now hooks it as like, it, just think through, like, the lens of, like, a, a, an experience of repelling. You're, you're connected to someone else, and you're being, you're being delivered to where you're supposed to be. That what this man, Daniel, does is he hooks himself to the covenantal love of God, and then he begins to open up who he is. He confesses. He confesses his sin. This word confession is yada. 
It, it's a threefold word. It means to confess your sin. It means to confess that God is just in his judgment. And it means to praise God, to confess that God is God. That what, what this man does is he acknowledges and owns his own darkness. He receives the judgment, the, the ultimate judgment that God himself is going to pay. And then he praises God for being God. And that is the approach that he has for himself. That's the approach that he has for his people. And this is now what fuels him to be the one that now leads Darius to an understanding of faith of, of God. In Daniel chapter 6. That you have in Daniel. Daniel's the one that leads Nebuchadnezzar to a faith in God. Daniel chapter 5. That this man is tied to a life of prayer through confession. And a life of now extending himself for the welfare of his city. What is this to close? What does this look like for us? What does, this, what does this look like from a practical side? How what do we walk away from a story like this? The Moravians and Count Zinzendorf is the community that I feel like embody this in a unique way. Count Zinzendorf was a German noble he had power and privilege and prestige and esteem and resource. He loved Jesus, uh, but all he wanted to do was, was be a pastor. That's all he wanted to do. But in the stratification of that society, it prevented him from doing that. Uh, until his grandmother gave him a very large estate with lots of ground. It was during this time that the Anabaptists were facing persecution for their convictions. And this was a, was a collection of about 400 people from a, a host of diverse backgrounds. You had people who were Calvinists and Arminian, polarized as they saw each other. And yet here they found themselves on this property. Very similar to all of the different perspectives of the day of Jeremiah and trying to figure out what do we do. And it was in this moment that Count Zinzendorf, he had this passion. He had this belief that, you know what, that God wants to unify his people in order to do something special. And so he went from home to home to home to home and he, he pleaded with them. And prayed with them that God would bring us together in unity for the world. And on August 13th, 1727, he brought them together for a communion service. And it was here where what is described that the spirit of God fell. And they, they were, were not sure if they were on, in heaven or on earth for 11 hours. It was an encounter that was so supernatural and so formational with Count Zinzendorf as a 27-year-old young man who had a passion for Leviticus chapter 6 verse 13 that focused on the continuous fire from God's presence. He just happened to believe was going to happen in his property with this ragtag bunch of Anabaptist believers. They got a vision of their unity undoing the brokenness of the world around them. And so the result was that 
what Richard Loveless, a theologian, he said that this was the most effective missional community that the church has ever known. From that point forward, beginning on August the 13th, for a hundred years, there was a 24-hour prayer watch every day for a hundred years. People who owned where they were, owned God's presence, owned God's people, owned God's mission, owned God's prayer. Result was there were two missionaries and they realized they, there was a group of people in the Caribbean that had never been reached with the gospel, but the only way to get there was to sell yourself into slavery. So here they find themselves on a dock stepping onto a ship and their last words were, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And as they sell themselves into slavery, as they sell themselves into slavery, result was over 2,000 people that, that were slaves in that day that, that now surrendered their life to God. And there was a portal of belonging, a portal of God's presence that fell in the Caribbean. William Wilberforce, while in Parliament, he was trying to figure out where is an example of social proof that slavery can be overcome. Guess what he does? In this moment, in front of Parliament, what he does is he uses the Moravians as a primary example of the fact that slavery can be pushed back and can be dismissed as a result of what God is doing in the Caribbean. John Wesley, storm rises up on his track from England to the U.S. and he's fearing his life. He thinks he's going to die. And he finds himself hearing a prayer service by a group of Moravians in a 24-hour prayer experience. Their life, they, were, they didn't care if they were going to live. They didn't care if they were going to die. They were confident in Jesus and the presence of God upon their life. And this man, his heart is strangely warmed in this moment as he's fearing for his life. George Whitfield, is a revivalist. He goes to an all-night prayer experience and guess what he does? He gets filled with the Holy Spirit. William Carey becomes the father of modern missions. Hears stories of people becoming converted. Comes into the Baptist Social Society. Takes a pamphlet of the Moravians. Slams it down and says, why can't we reach the heathens like the Moravians? A mission movement eradicating slavery, discipleship, revival, all birthed out of a small group of believers that were committed to God's heart for prayer and God's heart for people. What might he do with us? During this fast, this moment of disconnecting, hearing from God freshly, what would it look like for us to own where we are. For us to, to, to look to Jesus, the one who, who came as one of us. And he gave himself fully to, 
to his father in order to now provide for people both naturally and, and spiritually. This is a man who, who came to now extend himself for holistic peace. Like what would it look like for us as a church to now consider our life, consider where we are, consider the neighborhoods that we're in, consider the places where, where we work, to consider it through this lens of, God, am I fighting the sending? Have I surrendered to, to the sending? What might you want to do through me in, in the way in which I extend peace? Extend just a, a, a type of peace that now comes from the king himself through my life, a surrendered life. Lord Jesus, we, we just take these moments and we... We ask for you to help us see our city through a new lens. That you would help us see ourself, be honest with where we're at. Be honest with the fact that for some of us, we're fighting where we are. Marriage, job, this church, city, there's a resistance. Lord, we, we just, we want to take moment, a posture just to surrender. Just to surrender. And I don't, I don't want to fight where I've been placed any longer. Lord, will you transition us from, from resisting to now accepting? And as we accept the sending, we accept the place, we accept the city. God, will you allow us to, to be people who embrace where you've placed us? To love the city to love its people, to be those who have eyes that are open freshly, to be able to see what breaks your heart. Lord, will you give us courage to be able to pray as Daniel prayed? Pray prayers of repentance. Pray prayers of, of, of openness and honesty and transparency, owning our sin, relying upon your goodness, relying upon upon a loving father who's committed not just to us, but then now using us. God, will you allow for our prayers to be those that, that are Moravian prayers? God, will you fall upon your people like you did with them? Will you allow us to experience your presence in unique ways that bind us together in unity? God, will you bind us together in mission? Will you bind us together through prayer? Will you bind us together through open confession to one another with sin? God, will you, will you break down any walls of disunity or division? God, bind us in unity on this, this important third day of this fast. God, freshly fall upon us so that we can see a move of God through this people, through this house, through this city in ways we've never seen before. In your name we pray.